Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have made yourself known to us. And we pray now that you would uh, teach us. Father, would you speak to us? Help us see clearly who you are and what is true. We know that we uh, need your help as we come to your word. And so we just pray by your spirit, you would open our eyes to see and our ears to hear. Lord, we pray you'd have your way here this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, friends. Well, hey, welcome. Go ahead and join me in John chapter 11, verse 13, excuse me, verse 17 is where we're going to be as we continue our sermon series, just walking through the Gospel of John. This is week 33, I believe, in the Gospel of John, and we are just marching right through. So verse 17 is where we're going to be. As you find that, you know, I've mentioned this before, that sociologists and anthropologists have studied cultures and how different cultures prepare their people to face death and loss and suffering, right? Every culture throughout history and throughout the world today even have to somehow give an answer or respond to death, right? How do we deal with death and loss? How do we make sense of it? And as these various cultural approaches are studied, one thing often stands out that researchers will note. They'll point out that modern Western culture, our culture, is arguably the worst culture in the history of the world at preparing its people to face suffering and death. Go team. <laughs> right, I'll say it again. Arguably, researchers notice that Western culture Western secular culture is arguably the worst culture in the history of the world at preparing its people to face suffering and death. Think about it. Largely, that is because the Western approach to life is about avoiding pain at all costs, finding comfort, pursuing Happiness, your dreams, right? Self-expression, self-fulfillment. Meaning in life is found by what? Pursuing your own happiness. And so when suffering comes, when loss comes, when death comes, it's purely an interruption. It gets in the way of your joy and your story. There's nothing beyond death, our culture will tell us, and when it does come, when loss comes into your life, it's not really redeemable. It just gets in the way. Not to mention uh, the advances in science and medicine in the modern world, which are great things, things that we can thank God for. Uh, but today, we are much more removed from suffering and pain compared to our ancestors, right? Those who have lived in generations and centuries before us. If you look at basic statistics like infant mortality rate, uh, death of children, death in the family, I mean, it was much more common than it is today. Now, it doesn't take the sting away just to say today we are more removed from those realities than those in the past. When you add all that together, it means that we today are not always very well prepared or equipped to face suffering and loss. It's harder for us to navigate 
than those who have gone before us. And so this morning in John chapter 11, we're going to take a close look at grief, at loss, at death. And yes, there's comfort and encouragement and hope here in the text, but there's also some difficult realities. And we're not going to be able to answer every question about pain or loss, but I hope that what we'll see in this text is a sample, an example of how the Christian faith and the Word of God gives us incredible resources with which we can navigate pain and loss. Much greater resources than our secular culture has to offer. Picking up where we left off last week, uh, if you were with us, you saw what that Jesus' friend Lazarus got sick. So his sisters, Mary and Martha, send word to Jesus, hey, Lazarus is sick, but Jesus does what? He kind of, in a puzzling way, stays where he is longer. He doesn't show up to remedy the situation, and Lazarus dies. So we pick up the story then, once Jesus does decide to go and visit this family. You saw it in verse 17. Here it is again. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. There are really three main sections of the passage that we're looking at, uh, and it's broken down by Jesus' interactions with these three siblings. He interacts with Mary first, or excuse me, Martha first, then Mary, and then he's going to have a little conversation with Lazarus at the end. So we start here, though, in this first section with his conversation with Martha. Jesus arrives at Bethany, the text tells us, near Jerusalem, and we see that many people are coming to support the family. Right With the loss of their brother, they would spend that first week in grief and mourning, likely sitting on the floor of their home while uh, people from the community would come to support them, bringing food and sympathy to help this family through this. And we do often the same thing today, right? Think about that. When someone dies, when there's grief that a family is navigating, we do what? We show up with a casserole, right? We, we, sh- we go to provide sympathy and help and encouragement. It was expected socially that the community would provide this kind of support. So the next time someone in your life is grieving, you show up with a casserole. Remember, you not only are just baking a casserole, you are participating in this ancient tradition, this ancient liturgy of providing love and support for those who are in need. So good job. But what does she say when she finally sees Jesus? She sees that Jesus is getting close. She goes out to meet him, and how does she lead? Verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Some people look at this as a great statement of faith, but most people see it as more of a polite accusation. If you had been here, She knows not to issue a a harsh, direct rebuke to Jesus. And so, in a socially acceptable way, she's saying to Jesus indirectly, you should have been here, but you weren't. And so this loss for her is 
it's disorienting. And knowing the power of Jesus, she knows this was preventable, and yet Lazarus died. And so here we see she's giving voice to what so many of us feel when we face suffering and loss. Confusion, disorientation, wondering why, right? This is preventable. It didn't have to be this way. You see Jesus respond in verse 23. Your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? So notice in Jesus' response, he doesn't explain himself. He doesn't defend himself. Here's why I chose to work in this way. He simply says, your brother will rise again. And you, you notice at this, she thinks he's talking about an event at the end of time, right? She's like, okay, the resurrection at the last day. That's what Jesus is talking about. See, she believed, and Jesus, in his own teaching, reinforced this, that at the end of time, all will be raised, and some will be raised to face judgment and condemnation. Others will be raised to life with God forever. And so she says, yeah, I know, at the end of all things, at the last day, there's going to be this resurrection, and, and I'll see Lazarus again. But you notice Jesus is doing something a little bit different here, right? He's not pointing her to the end of time. He's pointing her to himself. And we see here one of those other uh, I am statements that is scattered throughout the book of John, right? As we've read through the book of John, a number of times Jesus has said, I am blank. I am the bread of life, right? I am the good shepherd and so on. Now here, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live. And so he's saying, Martha, I'm not talking about something later. I'm talking about what I can alone give to you. You don't have to wait, right? There's new life available in me. He's redirecting her attention and her faith, not to some event at the end of history, but to personal faith in him. I am the resurrection and the life. Resurrection and eternal life are inseparably linked with the person of Jesus. Because I alone can provide it. Look at how verse 26 ends then. Do you believe this? And so notice what Jesus is doing here in this tragedy, in this loss. He's using it as an opportunity for Martha to express faith in him. It's an opportunity for Martha's faith to grow, to be deepened in the complexity of grief and loss, the death of her brother. She does not get an explanation, but she gets an invitation. Or she doesn't get an explanation. She gets an invitation to believe. Do you trust me? Do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that whoever believes in me will live even though they die like Lazarus? See, our culture will tell us that 
death is the end and suffering is meaningless, but Jesus says otherwise. He says, even in, in loss and suffering, this is all part of a bigger story. Martha, there's more going on here than you can see. Do you trust me? Her response, yes, Lord, verse 27. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. Now, I need to be honest with you, church, this was a hard, this was a hard sermon to prepare this week. I don't know if this has ever quite happened to me, but this week, part of me really didn't want to preach this text. Uh, and it's because I know so many of us are navigating grief and loss right now. A lot of you in recent times have faced death and loss and are hurting. And as I've talked with some of you and sat with many of you and just heard stories, often it's, it's hard, right? And, and we want, in those moments, so often we want satisfying answers, right? Comfort, some kind of explanation, some, some way to make sense of the devastating loss. Jesus, help us see how the math adds up, right? Like, we know that you work all things for our good and your glory. We know that you are sovereign, but I don't understand, right? Why would you choose to work in this way, to bring this, to allow this, you know, why? We don't know. And sometimes, praise God, we do get glimpses of how he redeems those tragedies, right? Sometimes, praise God, we get to see how he takes something so broken and brings something beautiful out of it. And for that, we can be profoundly grateful. But there are other times where the math just doesn't add up, at least from our perspective. This side of heaven, we may never understand. We may never know why. And that's really hard. And then in that place, we're given still an invitation. Do you trust me? Do you believe that I am good, that I am the resurrection and the life, that there is hope, even if this doesn't make sense? Even if it never makes sense in your lifetime, do you trust me? Do you believe that I'm good and at work in this? There is one place that we do find great comfort. Ah, more than one place, but there's a number of places in this text we do find great comfort, even if we don't get explanations. Verse 28. Look what happens next. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher's here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out. They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So after talking with Martha, now it's sibling number two's turn, Mary. 
Mary leaves the house and she comes and she finds Jesus outside of the village where he was speaking with Martha. The crowd follows this time. And how does Mary start the conversation? With the exact same words that Martha used. Lord, if you had been here. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? If you had been here. And then even the crowds, right, in verse 37, he could have stopped this. Notice once again, he doesn't defend himself or explain himself. He also doesn't rebuke her for expressing her confusion. But what does he do? Verse 33, he saw all this and he was deeply moved in spirit, it says. And then verse 35, Jesus wept. Verse 33 is big. It says Jesus was deeply moved when he saw her weeping, when he saw the crowd weeping. Now, translators have had a difficult time translating the Greek word that's used here, where it says deeply moved. Sometimes, often in English translations, it says just that. He was deeply moved. Uh, he was deeply touched. He, was, he groaned in his spirit. Maybe your translation says that. It's some form of expression of grief or sorrow, sympathy, empathy for what's going on. Uh, however, when this word is used, it's not often used in the New Testament, but in other places and outside of the New Testament in the Greek world, when it's used, it carries the meaning often of uh, anger, outrage, deep frustration. And so as people approach this word, how to translate it, it seems like there's maybe more going on than just sadness, just compassion, just feeling for this family. I believe that it is that, but I think mixed in here as well, we see the sense of, of anger and outrage, which of course makes us ask the question, why is Jesus angry in this situation? What is he angry about? Some would say, well, it's the lack of faith. You know, Mary, Martha, the crowd... He's troubled by their lack of faith, maybe. I, I think a better translation, though, or a better interpretation is that he is angry, outraged at death. At sickness leading to death. At the fallen state of our world. At the brokenness that is disrupting this family's life. And so with great compassion, he looks at this whole scene and the pain and the weeping and there's outrage in his spirit. We have an enemy that brings death and destruction and sickness and it deeply stirs Jesus. So much so that verse 35, he weeps with this family. He weeps with them. Sometimes, we mentioned this last week, right? Sometimes we think Jesus is cold or aloof or indifferent or because he's sovereign, somehow, you know, he is above the emotional life that we know. 
But if you read through the Gospels, you find no such thing, right? And here is a great example. Jesus is not unconcerned with our pain and the brokenness of the world and the grief and sorrow that we feel at loss. See, it was the Greek philosophers or the Roman philosophers who really emphasized temperance. And in the face of grief, you stay calm, and that is a virtue. You try to be above that, untroubled by it. And sometimes we think that's a Christian response, but it's not. Because what do we see here? We see in the Old Testament, and now in Jesus himself, our Lord, deep emotion, expressed emotion, weeping. That's part of how God made us, not just to gloss over loss, but there is deep resources in Scripture to teach us how to lament. When we lament, we cry out and say, it's not supposed to be like this. So we don't, as Christians, just jump to, ah, it's fine, we have hope. Let's quickly, you know, speed to that part. Hopefully, by God's grace, we, we get there. But first, there's this grieving process that includes lament, tears, grief at what is lost. And so we can take comfort, friends. I hope this is an encouraging word for you, that in your sorrow and in your pain, Jesus weeps with you. The Psalms tell us God is near to the brokenhearted. He's near to you in those moments. And not only that, in his anger against death and the brokenness of our world, he is resolved to conquer death and do something about it. We get a taste of that in what follows. Look at verse 38. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he's been in there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out. His hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. So first he talks to Martha. Then he talks to Mary, and now it's the third sibling's turn. It's Lazarus' turn. They go to the tomb, roll away the stone, and Jesus prays, knowing that his father hears him. And then he cries out, Lazarus, come out. And it says, the dead man, the man who had died, came out. He's raised back to life. It's amazing. It's so good, you guys. It's incredible. Now, it's Halloween today. Um, and I didn't plan that, I promise you. 
But if you see anyone tonight, you know, dressed up as you're trick-or-treating in, like, you know, zombie clothes or a dead person walking, this is a great opportunity to tell them the story of Lazarus and Jesus. You can say, are you dressed up like Lazarus? They'll say, Lazarus, well, let me tell you, John 11, Lazarus was dead and now he's alive. I see that's what you're going for with your costume here. And they're like, what? And you'll tell them about Jesus and resurrection. Sound good? Okay, you have an in. You have a great conversation starter right there. You're welcome. <laughs> but so, no, notice... Jesus has raised people to life before. We've seen this elsewhere in the Gospels, but never someone as dead as Lazarus. Right? We talked about this last week. Lazarus was dead, dead. You know, he wasn't just like a day or two dead. He was like really dead, beyond the point of no return in their minds. Martha, even in verse 39, she's like, it's going to smell in there, Jesus. His body is decaying. It's been four days. Don't open that thing up. And Jesus shows his power even there over the grave. And he raises him to life. Now, in Jesus' public ministry, there have been a number of signs displaying his power, who he is. Remember where it all started? Remember his first public sign? Anybody? John chapter 2, water into wine. He performs this miracle, keeps the wedding celebration going. John in the text tells us that was his first public sign. Now, this with Lazarus is, to date, the the greatest sign that we've seen so far. Really, it's the greatest sign other than Jesus' own resurrection, which we'll see coming. But uh, a turn takes place here in the text, because after this public sign, at the end of chapter 11, it's going to say, after this, Jesus basically didn't walk out in the open much more, because people were trying to arrest him and kill him. And so really, this is like the last of his great public signs before his death. And so think about the bookends to Jesus' public ministry so far. Starts at a wedding, ends at a funeral. Two of the most meaningful events in the life of any community. Still today, right? Weddings and funerals. And notice how Jesus responds to each. It tells us a lot about Jesus. With a wedding, he keeps the celebration going. With a funeral, he cancels it. Tells you a lot of what you need to know about Jesus. He keeps the wedding party going, and he cancels the funeral. And notice how he does it, too. You see that verse 42, 43? He prays, and then what? Just with a word. Lazarus, come out! As if Lazarus is some disobedient child on time out in his room. Lazarus, come out! It's that simple, and he comes out. There's no elaborate chant that Jesus does, or special dance, or crying out to his father over and over again in hopes that the father will hear him in desperation, or he doesn't, you know, dim the lights. Like, in order for for the power of God to be on display, we got to plug in the smoke machine and dim the lights and light some candles and kind of try and conjure up the power of God. Let's see if this thing works. That's not what he does. Speaks a word. Come out. That's it. And he comes out. See the wind and the waves obey his voice. Even the dead hear and obey. 
This is what Jesus promised would happen in chapter 5. Do you remember that? Back in chapter 5, verse 28. He says this, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And we're not just talking about some, you know, floaty uh, spiritual experience here. Where, you know, they all ate some bad pizza the night before, and now they're like, oh, I saw Lazarus, I think, and he was floating around and gave me a spiritual message. He walked out of the grave bodily, bodily resurrection. Stood up, walked out, back to life. We're not talking about some mere spiritual experience. Resurrection in Scripture is bodily, physical resurrection. Notice also what the text doesn't tell us. It doesn't report any of the aftermath. It doesn't tell us what happened next. It just ends really, Jesus is like, hey, take you know, the grave clothes off him. Let's get this guy some new clothes. And that's the end of the story. Like, John, you couldn't have told us a few more details? Like, what did Lazarus say? Did he have to write a thank you note? You know, like, what happened next? What did he do? How did the community respond? How did the, what, what was it like when the family was reunited with Lazarus? It doesn't tell us. You know, we can fill in the details in our minds, but it's almost as if the whole point of it is just to leave the focus on Jesus, right? Just a big spotlight on the power of Jesus and the love of Jesus on display. And Lazarus just kind of trots off into resurrection life into, until he dies, of course, and then we'll be, you know, that's another story. Now, with this, again, the focus being so clearly on Jesus, the, the point here then is, of course, to point us forward to Jesus' own resurrection. Right? This masterful foreshadowing here, a taste of what is to come. The resurrection of Lazarus points us forward to Jesus' own resurrection. Where on the third day, after his death and crucifixion, in the tomb, he was raised bodily to life and now stands victorious over death. Not only that, but he then promises that likewise, whoever trusts in him will also be made alive. Right? Whoever believes in me will live even though they die. This is so central to the good news of the gospel. We were dead. Dead in our sins. But God being rich in mercy makes us alive in Christ. Through faith. Right? Whoever believes we're saved by grace as a gift through faith. Whoever trusts in him. And so it's not that we, you know, we talk about this a lot, through our good works we revive ourselves you know, we're dead in our sin, but you can make yourself alive again if you work hard enough. That's not what it says. It says you were dead, but God made you alive. Right? Because through faith in Christ, you are united to the living one. So we can have eternal life as well. As Dane Ortland puts it in his book, Gentle and Lowly, right? We all read through that. A lot of us read through that back in September. Towards the last page of his book, he writes, Your death is not an end, but a beginning. Not a wall, but a door. Not an exit, but an entrance. 
So I want you to see, friends, the incredible hope that we have in Jesus, the resurrection and the life. Think about the incredible resources then as Christians we have to face suffering, death, and loss. We're not left like the secular world to say, well, there's nothing beyond death. There's no meaning to be found in this. But we're, we're shown what? Like Martha, we have this invitation to trust Jesus. That there's this bigger story that we're a part of, and he is at work even now. Like Mary, we're shown a God who weeps with us, who's not distant and uninterested. He's near to the brokenhearted, and he weeps with us in our pain. And we have a God who has conquered the grave. And like Lazarus, we too have the hope of resurrection life in him. Author Philip Yancey closes one of his books by telling the story of a woman he knew. And he says this, I, I know a woman whose grandmother lies buried underneath some 1,500-year-old oak trees in a cemetery in Louisiana. He says, in accordance with the grandmother's instructions, only one word is etched on her tombstone. Waiting. Only one word on the tombstone. Waiting. Because she, through faith in Christ, knew what was coming. That we, just like Lazarus, one day will hear the voice of Jesus. He will call us by name out of the grave into resurrection life with him forever. For whoever would believe. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we believe that you are the resurrection and the life. You have shown in your word and in these events your power over the grave. There is no one like you. And Lord Jesus, we admit that we are so desperate for you. We are so often weary and worried and heartbroken and troubled in this world. Where else can we go? So Lord, we look to you. We pray that you would comfort us. Help us trust you even when things don't make sense from our perspective. Thank you that you are near to us in our grief and sorrow. And I pray that you would Give us great, restored hope in the resurrection and that through faith in you, we too will live. I pray if anyone is here this morning and they've not put their faith in you, Jesus, they have not believed, I pray that they would do so, that you'd help them hear your voice to trust in you for the first time. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.